Glad to see everyone again tonight. We'll have a great class, uh, Christology. This is our systematic theology series with a focus in Christology. Uh, This is, I think, our our fourth class. So we are trucking along. And uh, this is part two of the Atonement of Christ. And the handouts are going around, so you'll get get one here uh, momentarily. Uh, Last week, we we began the atonement of Christ by defining what we mean by that. We defined the atonement as the work of Christ to earn our salvation. We examined themes of atonement in the Old Testament. The Levitical sacrificial system foreshadowed the atonement of Christ. We examined themes of the atonement in the New Testament as well. We unpacked redemption reconciliation, and propitiation. And these are the realities that you gain in the, in the work of Christ. And our theological conclusion from the themes of atonement is penal substitution. Christ took your place and bore the penalty that you rightly deserved. He died in your place, and this satisfied God's justice. This propitiated his wrath. Christ is our substitute because he was our perfect representative, the Holy Son of God. He became like us in all things so that he could could do this work for us. And tonight we'll continue and conclude our examination of the atonement of Christ. Here's kind of where we are uh, in in our class, the atonement of Christ. We'll begin uh, this evening with what we'll call the necessity of the atonement. And let's be clear about what we mean by necessity of the atonement. We're not asking what is the necessity for us. We're not asking what is our need for atonement. Our need for atonement is clear. And that was, that was covered in, in the homardiology part of this class in the first week period, so we won't rehash that. We know what the necessity is for us. We are sinners in need of a Savior. That's our necessity. So that's not what we're referring to tonight. Essentially, we're asking here, if there was any other way for God to save human beings than by sending His Son to die in our place, were there any other means by which God could redeem sinners? Or was Christ's atonement absolutely necessary for this? Was a vicarious sacrifice on behalf of the Son of God the only way? Or could God have accomplished humanity's redemption in some other way? That's what we mean by the necessity of atonement. And before confronting this this proposition, I think we need to first realize that it was not necessary for God to save any people at all. God could have chosen in his perfect justice to leave us all in our sins to await judgment, and he would have been perfectly righteous to do that. He could have chosen to save no one, just like he did with the the sinful angels, and again, he would have been completely righteous to do that. 1 Peter 2.4 tells us this. So, in that sense, the atonement was not necessary. However... Praise the Lord, God did decide to save sinners and redeem a people for his own possession because of his love for his image bearers and for his glory. It was God's plan all along to save sinners, and we praise him for that. We just celebrated Easter, and we celebrated the atonement and and, and the resurrection in the past weeks. So our question, again, is, was the specific work of Christ necessary to accomplish it? And we have to be careful not to superimpose anything onto God that Scripture does not reflect. And we could easily do that when discussing the necessity of the atonement and also the reach of the atonement, which we'll examine later this evening. It's easy to do that, particularly when we approach these matters by default, first and foremost, from a theological system. Like you start with a system of theology and then you go to the scripture. For example, you ought not to start with Calvinism and then go to the Bible. You don't ever do that. We start with the scripture and then draw our necessary theological conclusions that build the system. And that's, that's what we strive to do in this class. Now, there are a number of texts in Scripture that indicate 
There was no other way for redemption to be accomplished than through the substitutionary sacrifice of the Son. So in this sense, we will submit that the substitutionary atonement of Christ was necessary. Matthew 26, 39, And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And for our purposes, the key phrase of Christ here is, If it is possible. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus then says in the same breath, yet not as I will, but as you will, thus indicating that it it was not possible for the cup to pass from him. What Christ was to endure on the cross to redeem sinners was the will of the Father, and Christ was submitting to that will. And and we need to remember here as well that Christ was fully man in this moment. He, He took on to himself human nature. Jesus also said in this prayer that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I don't think it would be correct to say that Jesus was looking forward to the cup he was about to drink, the wrath of God poured out on him. I don't think it would be correct to say he was looking forward to that. But yet, he submitted to the will of the Father. That cup he was about to drink was necessary, or he wouldn't have drank from it. Luke 24, he said to them, You foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to come into his glory? The prophets spoke often of a suffering servant of the Lord. We'll look at some of those passages later. Christ had to come in the way he did in order to fulfill these prophecies. The Old Testament sacrificial system as well was full of types and symbols that pointed to the sufferings and death of Christ. In Hebrews 2.17, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brothers, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. MacArthur says that the full reality of Christ's humanity was demonstrated by the fact that he was subject to temptation, which is the focus of this, He became like his brothers in all things. He he became like us even to the point of feeling the full force of temptation from Satan himself in Luke 4. Jesus felt the full force of temptation from the devil himself, and he never faltered, unlike us who falter at even the slightest temptation from our own flesh. He demonstrated in that that he was to be the perfect propitiation, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect representative, the perfect blemish-free Savior. He is the representative that comes between man and God in his high priestly function. And a mere, a mere human being could, could not be the atoning sacrifice for all of God's people. Because again, mere humans are, are sinners and are therefore unclean. We need a clean sacrifice. We needed a representative who could not be tainted by sin. In other words, it had to be the Son. So we conclude from these passages that, yes, penal substitution by the Son of God was necessary. His vicarious sacrifice was necessary. Let's turn our attention to the nature of the atonement now. There are a few aspects to to the nature of Christ's atonement. First, we'll examine the sufficiency of the atonement. The sufficiency of the atonement. The sufficiency of Christ's atonement, in addition to penal substitution, I would submit to you may be the most important theological aspect of the work of Christ. And the sufficiency of the atonement encompasses a few areas. They're here and they're in your notes as well. Christ's obedience for us, Christ's sufferings for us, and then Christ's once-for-all sacrifice for us. First is Christ's obedience for us. Part of the atonement and the sufficiency of the atonement is his perfect obedience. Some call this his active obedience. We ought to think of this as Christ satisfying the demands of righteousness. You know, sometimes we tend to think of the atonement and the work of Christ kind of exclusively in terms of his sufferings on the cross. And that is a big part of it. 
as we'll see. He submitted himself unto suffering. But the scripture regards the work of Christ as one of obedience in his life. If Jesus hadn't had perfect obedience in his life, then his death on the cross wouldn't have meant anything for us. We needed a substitute, a representative that fulfilled all of God's statutes perfectly. We needed someone to obey when we disobeyed. Romans 5, 19, For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. We are all in Adam by default, and his disobedience is our disobedience. And so the Son of God came and took on to himself human nature to fulfill the obedience that is required of us. He succeeded in obedience where you did not. He obeyed when you disobeyed. He worshipped only God when we worshipped idols. He honored the name of God when we took it in vain. He honored his parents when we disrespected our parents. He was filled with love for others when we were filled with hatred and contempt for others. He kept his eyes and mind pure when we lusted. He gave when we coveted. He told the truth when we were liars. He was perfectly holy when we were filled with sin. We fall short of God's glory, and so we need a Savior who does not fall short of God's glory, one who did not fail in meeting God's standards. Due to our sin nature, we are unable to meet God's standards, so we need Christ's obedience. And we shouldn't think that the active obedience of Christ was artificial or mechanical in the sense of only formal fulfillment of God's commandments. Rather, Christ's obedience was that of a holistic righteousness. It involved his disposition, his will, his determination, his volition, his very heart, which was the bedrock of his formal fulfilling of God's commandments. It wasn't only about outward righteousness. There was an inward component as well, a heart component Inwardly, he was the righteousness that God demands, and that then overflowed to outward righteousness. This is what we need. Not just a representative who met the Levitical laws, but someone who could be our righteousness. We needed a representative who succeeded in every way where Adam failed. And Adam's failure, make no mistake, was was not only an outward failure. It was an inward failure as well. Through Christ's holistic obedience, the many are made righteous. Paul says in Philippians 3, And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. When we place our faith in Christ and repent of our sin, we are given a righteousness that is alien to us. The righteousness of Christ imputed to you. It's ascribed to you. It's it's, it's a righteousness that's outside of you, that's counted to you. We look to him for righteousness, not self. The world would tell you, what? Look inside yourself for what you think is righteousness and then put that on display for everybody else to see. You know, virtue signaling is something that the world is very much into right now. Display what you think is righteousness in you. Display it to everyone. And don't think that's something that only people out there in the world are tempted to do. I think we're tempted to do this as well in the church sometimes. The person who wants to display to everyone how spiritual they are, how many Bible studies they attend, how many verses they can recite. If that's your temptation... You need to remember that your flesh does not produce anything that God is interested in. Scripture tells us to look outside of ourselves for righteousness to Christ because you have none to present to God. It doesn't matter how religious or zealous you are. You have no righteousness in of yourself that satisfies God. For believers, our righteousness comes from Christ and His perfect obedience. 
We needed Christ to fulfill this for us. If you are in Christ, then God sees the righteousness of his Son. If you place your faith in Christ alone, repent and follow him, then you are clothed with the righteousness of the Son. Perfect obedience was required. So this is part of the atonement, Christ's obedience for us. And actually, his death was an act of obedience. This quote in your notes by John Murray, it was by obedience that he secured our salvation because it was by obedience that he wrought the work that secured it. So the second aspect of the sufficiency of Christ's atonement is his sufferings for us. His sufferings was sufficient for us. Christ took on himself suffering. Some call this his passive obedience. But we need to be clear about that terminology, though. We shouldn't think that anything Christ did was passive. Like he was the involuntary victim of obedience that was just kind of superimposed onto him. Even in his sufferings, he was not a passive recipient. He was not a passive victim of mankind's evil. John 10, I lay down my life so that I may take it back. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back. On the cross, Christ says, into your hands I commit my spirit. No one took the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave it up voluntarily at the time of his choosing. And he indicates in these very words in John 10 that his voluntary death was not to be the end. He has the authority to take his life back again. And he does at the resurrection, which we'll examine next time. So as we begin to examine Christ's sufferings for us, we we shouldn't think that he was victimized unwillingly or unknowingly. Quite the opposite. He entered into suffering Willingly, voluntarily. It was the will of the Father in which he submitted to. At any moment, Christ could have stopped his suffering with just a word. With just a word, he could have obliterated the masses that demanded his execution. But submitting himself to suffering is what he needed to do to redeem his people, to propitiate God's wrath and to reconcile us to God. Obedience is required of us, and we failed in that. And because of that failure, so also there is a penalty that is due to us. The Bible tells us that Jesus took that penalty upon himself. This is part of Christ's work, the atonement, hearkening back again to to penal substitution. A major characteristic of the Messiah in the Old Testament is that he would suffer for those he's saving Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3. He was despised and abandoned by men, a man of great pain and familiar with sickness. And like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we had no regard for him. However, it was our sicknesses that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assumed that he had been afflicted, struck down by God and humiliated. He was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. The Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him. This, This prophetic utterance was given to God's people many hundreds of years before Christ arrived in the Incarnation. The Messiah was clearly to be a suffering servant. The grief and sorrows of the Messiah would not be his own. This this substitutionary imagery is drawn directly out of Leviticus 17. The suffering servant bore the penalty for the sins of us all, for all who would be God's people. And his, his sufferings didn't occur by some sort of abuse or force. He purposely decided accepted and submitted to this suffering. Christ is the Savior who suffered for you. 
We talked in a previous class about the the sympathetic nature of Christ's humanity. But he not only experienced suffering in his life so he could sympathize with us. He He took the suffering that was meant for us. He was our substitute in suffering. And he suffered in specific ways. First, through the pain of death. I don't have this on the screen, but it's in your notes. First, through the pain of death. In Mark 15, 24. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Jesus suffered the pain of death. Christ was crucified. Crucifixion likely still fresh on your minds from, from, from the time of Easter. And I think we tend to believe, like when we read the crucifixion story, that Jesus suffered more physical pain than any other human man ever would. That's actually not a claim that the Bible makes. Wayne Grudem writes, We do not need to hold that Jesus suffered more physically than any human has ever suffered, for the Bible nowhere makes such a claim. However, we still must not forget that crucifixion was one of the most horrible forms of execution devised by man. We won't take the time to to go into graphic detail about what crucifixions were and what they did to a person, but a crucifixion was ugly. It was ugly, to say the least. It was designed to torment the criminal and and keep him from dying right away. The criminal was often beaten beforehand and deprived of clothing to increase his shame and then hung on the cross to eventually suffocate, typically a slow and brutal demise, lasting sometimes days. And it was meant to be a deterrent to crime. You know, the ancient world was not at all concerned with humane methods of execution. These executions were done publicly so people would see that this is what's in store for you if you dare commit a crime against the Romans. That's why people were allowed to be there mocking him and watching. This is what Jesus suffered for you. And and it was a physical suffering. And remember, he submitted himself to this form of death. But more intensely, he suffered the pain of bearing sin. It wasn't just that he died a physical death that was fairly horrific. He suffered the pain of bearing sin. 1 Peter 2, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. You have been healed by his wounds. I'll give you a guess on who Peter's quoting there. He became sin who knew no sin. He endured the pain of bearing the guilt of your sin. If you're a Christian, then you know what guilt over sin feels like. Even if you're not, you have a conscience that hopefully disturbs you when you do wrong, but if if you're a Christian, you know guilt over sin. Think of that feeling for a moment. You, you sin against someone outwardly, and they're hurt in some way. You know what you did was wicked, and you feel the burden of it. Your sin, in that way, consumes you until it's dealt with. Maybe you've sinned over and over again in the same way, and every time, intense shame overcomes you, and you feel far from God. Maybe you have betrayed someone in some way, and the guilt of that crushes you. And the more you grow in sanctification, the more guilt you kind of feel, because you understand the gravity of it. You've sinned against a holy and infinite God. You not only feel guilt, but you know you're guilty. Your guilt is upon you. All of this guilt that you experience over sin, Jesus bore all of it. He bore all of it from every single person who would be saved. He became sin. Remember who the Son is for a moment. Let's take our minds back a couple classes. Jesus was fully man. We unpacked that a lot, but he was fully God as well. He did not cease to be God. He did not cease to be holy. He didn't cease to have his divine attributes. He hated sin with his whole being. 
He can't tolerate sin. Everything about his character contradicts sin and the guilt of sin and the shame of sin. Everything about him contradicts it. Jesus Christ was instinctively at odds against evil and sin. And yet, out of love for us, Jesus took onto himself all of the sins of those who would be saved. He took on himself all of the evil from every one of his people that deserves the full wrath of God. The Son of God, who is truth, who is faithful, who is peace, who is love, who is good, and who is holy, bore onto himself all of the dishonesty, deception, mockery, chaos, lust, hatred, depravity, and every form of evil from every single one of those who are his people. He became sin. The Son became sin for you. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He took the very curse of sin onto himself. He, He took upon himself the curse pronounced on those who violated the law. The Holy Son of God became sin's curse for you. He suffered that pain of bearing your sin on the cross. He also suffered the pain of abandonment. The pain of abandonment. Matthew 26. But all this happened so that the prophetic scriptures would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. On a, just a human level, the people closest to him left him in his hour of greatest suffering. When he was agonizing in the garden, he he asked his three closest disciples just to stay awake and pray, and they couldn't even do that. They slept. He faced the suffering alone, only surrounded by his enemies, which is a form of suffering in of itself, isn't it? Abandonment. He had done nothing but love those disciples, and in return, they abandoned him. And yet, he still went to the cross for them. But he didn't just experience the abandonment of men. Matthew 27, verse 46, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we have to be careful here. We mustn't think that he was abandoned by God in the sense that the Father removed his presence from Christ, or that that Christ ceased to be God here. What happened was Christ was deprived of the closeness with the Father that was the deepest joy of his earthly life. Here he felt abandonment and despair, cut off from the fellowship he had been in since eternity past. Jesus Christ faced the weight of bearing sin alone. It really is incomprehensible that the Son of God would voluntarily submit himself to such a thing for Sinners like us. And lastly, he suffered the pain of bearing God's wrath. The pain of bearing God's wrath. This was the most intense and and difficult, for sure, of these aspects of, of bearing our sufferings. Jesus became the object of divine vengeance against sin on the cross. All of the divine, holy, infinite wrath of God poured out upon the Son on the cross in those three hours, as evidenced by the thick darkness that covered Judea. He bore God's wrath for you on the cross. Pastor Brian noted last Sunday during his Easter message that even after those three hours, Christ was still awake, alert, and he was talking. Only the Son of God could be our propitiation. Romans 3 Verse 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a propitiation through faith in His blood to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Him to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that He would be righteous and declare righteous 
the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul says that God put Christ forward as a propitiation. We've talked about that, haven't we? God doesn't just overlook your sin. God's wrath didn't disappear. Quite the contrary. Your sin was dealt with on the cross. The Son bearing the full fury of God's wrath that was meant for you, this is the heart of the atonement, a substitution. The penalty for sin was inflicted by God on Christ. Three more short passages. 2 Corinthians 5. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isaiah 56. Three, we, we all went astray like sheep. We have all turned our way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Romans 5, 8. But God proves his own love for us for that and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The payment made completely. There is no more outstanding debt for those in Christ. There is no wrath of God for those covered by the righteousness of Christ. There is no more enmity between God and the people who are his possession. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1, Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. This is what his sufferings accomplished. He bore our sufferings. The third aspect of the sufficiency of Christ's atonement is the once-for-all nature of his work. The sufficiency of Christ's atonement, namely that it was a once-for-all sacrifice, is a major theme in the book of Hebrews. I'd like to quickly examine a few texts from the book of Hebrews that reflect this. I'd like for you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll look there in a moment, but I'd like for you to be ready. We'll look at a few other little texts in, uh, in, in Hebrews first. Hebrews 10. The once-for-all sacrifice of Christ is an area that we can and should plant our theological flag. This is the gospel, that no works of yours are required. Christ's work is completely sufficient for your redemption. Look here at Hebrews 7. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who has no daily need like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all time when he offered up himself. Whenever a a Levitical priest sinned, he was required to make a sacrifice for himself first, and whenever the people sinned, he had to make a sacrifice for them on their behalf. This could be a daily occasion, as the writer of Hebrews notes. And of course, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, he would offer sacrifice for himself and the people. Jesus had no sin, so he didn't need to make a sacrifice for himself, the passage says. And his sacrifice on behalf of his people was not an animal, but he himself was the sacrifice. And it was a once-for-all sacrifice because of his holiness. The Son was fully able and took all of God's wrath onto himself for all of his people. Christ's sacrifice was not a delaying of God's wrath, but a satisfaction of it. Another sacrifice did not need to be made after his, unlike the Old Testament sacrifices. Hebrews 9, verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by hands, that is, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all time, having obtained eternal redemption. After many generations of adherence to the Mosaic Covenant, many years of waiting, Christ has appeared. He's arrived. He is the high priest of the good things that have come. Those good things being the things of the new covenant. The good things pertaining to salvation. A change in your heart. The better things. 
In contrast to the Levitical priest who entered the Holy of Holies repeatedly over the years on the Day of Atonement to make sacrifice for the people, Christ entered the heavenly Holy of Holies once for all, but not with an animal sacrifice, but by his own blood. This work never again needing to be repeated. And this actually opens up access to God that was previously unobtainable. Christ provides reconciliation in his work. A few minutes ago, I asked you to turn to to Hebrews 10. Let's look there now. It's it's a little bit bigger chunk of Scripture than, than what I wanted to try to put up here on the screen. Let's begin in verse... Let's begin in verse 9. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. This is the covenant which I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law upon their heart and write them on their mind. And then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will no longer remember. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, an offering for sin is no longer required. Verses 9 and 10 is really where the author begins to unpack the the once-for-all nature of Christ's work. Once-for-all, one-for-all-time. These phrases are repeated numerous times in our passage. The old order of the first covenant is superseded by the new order of the second covenant, inaugurated through the offering of Christ's sacrifice once for all time. The author references Psalm 110 to root all of this and what was predicted in the Old Testament. Remember, Christ didn't just appear out of nowhere. His atonement didn't come out of nowhere. It was predicted. The author's point in these verses in, in 11 through 13 is that Repetition was necessary for the priests and for the sacrifices because there was no permanence attributed to the sacrifices. The priests never stopped. They couldn't stop. These these sacrifices couldn't take away sins permanently. They never were able to sit down at the right hand of God waiting. However, with the perfection of Christ's sacrifice, he was able to sit down at the right hand of God. No further sacrificial service is required of him. Christ's ongoing ministry now is one of intercession, not of sacrifice. And then in verses 14 through 18, the author then connects this once-for-all nature of Christ's work specifically to the inauguration of the new covenant. The new covenant being first prophesied by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. I know we're spilling over into soteriology a little bit, the doctrine of salvation, but that's okay because theology overlaps as we've already established. Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each one to his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and their sin I will no longer remember. So this is the new covenant inaugurated via the blood of Christ just as the Abrahamic covenant was inaugurated with blood and more notably the Mosaic covenant like we saw last time was inaugurated with blood sacrifice. This new covenant is what we are under as the church. The once for all work of Christ has inaugurated this. He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. 
sin he no longer remembers. There is permanent forgiveness found in Christ's work. And this once-for-all nature of Christ's atonement is not just localized to the book of Hebrews. The New Testament as a whole reflects this. Just a couple of other texts here. Romans 6, knowing that Christ, having, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. So Paul here actually applies the sufficient nature of Christ's atonement to believers. Christ's once-for-all work accomplishes redemption, permanent redemption. You are dead to sin and alive to Christ. He is your master, and nothing plucks you out of the Father's hand. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered for sins once for all time, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So Peter, as well, applies the sufficient nature of Christ's atonement. His work accomplishes reconciliation, permanent reconciliation. You don't go back and forth from friend to enemy to friend to enemy. He has done the work once for all. He brings us to God. So this is not just theological data for seminarians. This is significant for all of us. Christ's death, his work on the Christ. His work on the cross was once for all. God's word is absolutely resolute in this. If you give up the sufficiency of Christ's atonement, the sufficiency of his obedience, the sufficiency of his sufferings, the sufficiency of his sacrifice, then you're giving up the very message of the gospel. Because if Christ's atonement is insufficient in any of these ways, then you must add your works to it. You have to make up for whatever is lacking. In the atonement. But you know what God's word says about your works. They're like filthy rags that he throws in the trash. He's not interested. No works that you do have any efficacy to them in the sense that they impart to you any kind of salvation merit. All of that grace is given only through Christ's sufficient work. Christ's atonement is 100% sufficient in its merit. It is limitless in its value and worthiness and comprehensiveness. It is completely sufficient to atone for the sins of as many people as come to Jesus, of as many people as God wills. This is the sufficiency of the atonement. His obedience was enough. His sufferings were enough. His sacrifice was enough. If you're going to plant your Christological flag somewhere, this is one of those places. And the next aspect of the the nature of the atonement is the extent of the atonement. The extent of the atonement. And like with all of these topics, there's a lot we could talk about, but... We do need to be kind of selective with what we cover, so we'll focus our attention in in two areas, two areas that are related. The first one is the reach of the atonement. How far does it it reach? We've spent quite a bit of time in Hebrews. Hebrews is filled with Christological themes. As we've seen already, if you want to understand the nature of Christ's atonement, then study the book of Hebrews. We'll visit one more short passage there. Hebrews 9, verse 15. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the violations that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So we visited this this passage last time, if, if you remember. Redemption has been earned, the passage says, from the transgression committed under the first covenant. So sins that were committed before Christ inaugurated the new covenant are covered by Christ's atonement in in a retroactive kind of way. The Levitical sacrifices did not accomplish any kind of heart-level sanctifying. And and this is keeping with the symbolism we've been seeing with certain parts of of the Mosaic Covenant, specifically the Day of Atonement. That was a time, one day a year, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of the people, sins that were committed from the previous year, 
And the sacrifice of this Day of Atonement, again, took place over and over again. Well, Christ's sacrifice, we've seen, is is once for all. And so he's the mediator of a new covenant. A covenant in which forgiveness is extended to all those who are justified by faith. So the reach of Christ's work extended as far back as was necessary to cover those who look to God in faith. And it reaches now to all who come to Christ in faith, to all whom God calls out of their sin. It's, it's 100% sufficient in its merit to do that. But we need to understand as well that the atonement of Christ is not a universalist doctrine in the sense that it applies to all men. A couple of texts for this, 2 Corinthians 5, For the love of Christ compels us, having concluded this, that One died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. First of all, there's a clear difference in the lives of those who are believers. There's a difference in the lives of those in whom the atonement applies. Those who've been regenerated through the Holy Spirit, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, present evidence of that regeneration. Their master is different. They serve him. There is sanctification in the life of a believer. So they, in part, might be distinct from those in the unbelieving world. The atonement of Christ brings about a heart-level sanctifying work. And that heart work is evidenced through a life that follows Christ. And Christ's work makes man reconcilable to God Christ doesn't make God reconcilable to man because God's not the one with the sin problem, is he? We are. He makes us reconcilable to God. We come to Christ in faith as God in his sovereignty calls us out of our sin and the work of Christ applies to those who come to him and then that is evidenced in their their life as they follow him. John 6, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. For this is the will of my Father, that those who see the Son and believe in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Free and full salvation and final perseverance of believers is expressly declared to be the will of the Father by Christ. Part of the work of Christ and the will of the Father is that Christ ensures the full salvation of those who believe in him. The application of the atonement is for those who come to Christ, for those who believe. J.C. Ryle says, It was the Father's will that free salvation be brought near and made within reach of all men. And it was also his will that every believer in Christ be completely and finally saved through his work. So the reach of the atonement is related to its sufficiency. Christ's work is infinite in its merit. It's 100% sufficient to bring about the salvation of as many people as God wills, even those who lived before Christ. No repentant sinner is outside the reach of Christ. But you have to come to Christ. I think we should ask now, is the atonement limited? You're no doubt familiar with the, the, the pithy doctrines of grace acronym TULIP. Let's see, what does it stand for? Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. I think I got them all. Yeah. Now, a lot of folks take issue with the L, limited atonement. So our question is, is that the best way to describe this doctrine by calling it limited? All of the things we've discussed thus far, can you properly, with total and complete exegetical honesty, quantify all that in a pithy label? The label limited atonement is an effort to sum up a lot of this doctrine concisely. Now, I, for one, appreciate brevity. Personally, I like a teacher who is succinct. In college, if I had a class that was an hour and a half, you know, block time, and the teacher finished teaching at one hour, they just let us out. I appreciated that. Don't just draw it out to fill out the time. I personally err on the side of brevity. I I enjoyed writing in college and in seminary, 
But my struggle with writing papers in college and even in seminary was, why would I write 20 pages when I can say what needs to be said in eight? You know, why would I just keep going on and on and on when I can just be kind of succinct about it? So I do believe there is a place for being succinct and pithy and coming up with ways to quantify it, to be as clear as we can. So, is limited the best way to describe the atonement of Christ? In our efforts to be pithy and concise, sometimes we could become spotty in our accuracy. We could make unclear what the Scripture really does make clear. So again, is limited the best way to describe it? Maybe. That's my answer, maybe. Uh, As long as you are crystal clear on what the Bible says about the atonement of Christ, and you're crystal clear on what you mean by limited, perhaps it would be better for us to become attached to the Scripture and what's in the Bible and not become so attached to labels. As we've discussed, the atonement of Christ is is limitless in its merit. The work of Christ is 100% sufficient to bring about the salvation of all who would come to him in faith, all who God would call out of their sin. But the atonement applies only to those who come to Christ. The Bible doesn't teach universalism. So in that sense, perhaps limited is a good word for the application of the atonement. Maybe particular is a better word. Maybe efficient is a better word. Maybe definite is a better word. As long as we plant our flag on God's word and what he says. Now there are a few implications of the atonement. I'd I'd like to draw out uh, as we wrap up our discussion on the atonement. We've discussed some of these implications throughout the content of the past couple of classes, but I wanted to just list them here uh, at, at the end here of our class. First is, remember the cost of your redemption. Sin should be taken seriously, even after conversion. Should you, con- should you continue sinning so that grace may abound? Remember what your sin cost. Why would you go back to, to what Christ has freed you from? You were enslaved to a master. That master was sin, your flesh. Christ has redeemed you so that he would be your master, and the payment was the blood of the master. He propitiated God's wrath for you. He took the punishment that was meant for you. The penalty of your sin was laid on him. The implication is when you are tempted to return to sin, remember the cost of your redemption. The atonement of Christ is sufficient to break those chains of sin. Remember Christ. Remember your good master, your good shepherd. Run to him and rejoice in his work that he's done for you. These next two implications go together. Not everyone will be saved And also, Christ's work should be proclaimed to anyone and everyone without exception. So, you know, we aren't universalists. The scripture doesn't teach universalism. The atonement is sufficient for all, but its application is is not bestowed upon those who reject Christ and, and who reject the gospel. The scripture also does not teach fatalism that would lead us to do nothing with the gospel. Quite the contrary. 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are a believer so that you might proclaim his work to others. You know what Peter's referring to when he says, proclaim the excellencies of Christ? The word excellencies here implies the ability to perform amazing work. Peter is saying, because you have the benefits of Christ's work in you, you need to tell others about that work. Tell people about Christ's amazing work that he has done in and for you. He has called you out of darkness into light. Share that. This is one of the reasons why you are a chosen people, so that you may proclaim him. You know, we are not ever to withhold the message of of Christ because it's not our message to withhold. It's his message, and he has told us to proclaim it to all, to the world. We are to proclaim Christ's work to whoever will hear it, whoever's in our circle of influence. 
There is no greater privilege for a believer than to share the words of the gospel with someone who is in unbelief, to tell a dead sinner about the life-giving work of Christ. You know, there's a slogan that says something along the lines of proclaim the gospel and sometimes use words, something like that. That's one of the most ridiculous Christianese phrases I've, I've ever heard. It's, it's, it's horrible. It should be proclaim the gospel and always use words and have a life of obedience that backs it up. Christ's work should be proclaimed to anyone and everyone without exception because you don't know who God will call out of their sin. And lastly, abandoning the sufficiency of Christ's work is to abandon the gospel itself. Like we mentioned earlier, if you give up the sufficiency of Christ's atonement, the sufficiency of his obedience, the sufficiency of his sufferings, the sufficiency of his, his sacrifice, then you're giving up the very message of the gospel. Because again, if Christ's work is insufficient in any of those ways, you must add your works. You have to make up for what's lacking in the atonement. You know, rejecting the sufficiency of the atonement leads into serious theological and just practical error. For example, this leads in in part into the position of the Roman Catholic Eucharist, where the elements of the Lord's table literally become the body and blood of Christ. And the Catholic priest, like Pastor Brian says, speaks his hocus-pocus Latin chant and calls Christ down from his throne at the right hand of the Father and puts him back onto the altar to be sacrificed again and again and again. And among, um, among other things, this is how you get a little bit of salvation grace. Therefore, in order to be fully saved, you have to participate in this over and over and over again. I also thought of those, those, those folks from the Philippines that Pastor Brian spoke about this morning, how they hang themselves on the cross every Easter, nail their hands into the cross, and then hang there and pray. And somehow this gets them closer to God. And those throughout church history who flagellated themselves when they sinned as some kind of self-atonement. I mean, you see what catastrophic error that is? Not only theological, but practical to yourself. Christ's work is completely sufficient to propitiate God's wrath, to redeem from sin, and to reconcile all those who come to Him. So, we look to Jesus alone and His work. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's his his work, the atonement. We have a couple of minutes left. Just, Just to take a brief glance at these other views regarding the atonement, I wanted to make sure we spent most of our time on what's true. Here are some things that are not. Uh, These are views you probably would have been confronted with. You may not have known it was called the recapitulation view, but here they are. They're in your notes with the definition from from Wayne Grudem and also Paul Enns. This first one is the ransom view, first posited by Origen. According to this view, the ransom Christ paid to redeem us was paid to Satan, in whose kingdom all people were by virtue of sin. This is the most docile of these views, but it's still not right because the Bible nowhere says that Christ paid a price to Satan. Christ doesn't propitiate Satan's wrath. He propitiates God's wrath. The recapitulation view, first posited by Irenaeus, Christ went through all phases of Adam's life and experience, including the experience of sin. In this way, Christ was able to succeed wherein Adam failed. This takes takes some things too far. Christ did not experience sin. He, He did not sin himself. The moral influence view, first posited by Peter, Peter Abelard, this theory of the atonement holds that God did not require payment of a penalty for sin, but that Christ's death was simply a way in which God showed how much he loved humans by identifying with their sufferings, even to the point of death. Christ's death, therefore, becomes a great teaching example that shows God's love to us and draws us from a grateful response so that in loving him, we are forgiven. So, obvious error here. You know, the belief that there was no payment needed for sin, but Christ's you know, death is needed for our response. We respond to God through the atonement, is what this is saying. 
And then the example view first posited by Soconus, Soconus, I don't know how to say that. If you do, tell me afterward. This view, which is a more liberal view than the moral influence view, suggests the death of Christ was unnecessary in atoning for sin. Sin did not need to be punished. There was no relationship between the salvation of sinners and Christ's death. Rather, Christ was an example of obedience, and it was that example of obedience to the point of death that ought to inspire people to reform and live as Christ lived. I don't even need to tell you why that's wrong. (laughs) So so don't believe those views. I did list just a few um, recommended resources there if you want to do more reading on the atonement, really helpful books here. Um, Just a couple notes. This first one by Bruce Damaris, The Cross and Salvation. That is a book on soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. He lumps the atonement in there, which is fine. Um, Also, this, this small book by John Murray, Redemption, Accomplish and and applied. It's a small book, but that thing is hefty, so you don't want to read through that too fast. But it's a great class. Um, next time, we're going to look at the resurrection and the ascension. So we're going to see God's stamp of approval on the atonement next time. So that'll be a great class. We'll look at some, some texts in the Old Testament to, to see resurrection. We'll look at the accounts of the resurrection and the ascension. We'll draw out some implications. So look forward to seeing you then. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your work. Thank you for for coming to this earth, uh, 